0: This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan.
1: And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Vanishing Acts and Secret Scandals, a compilation of author mysteries
0: Uh, There's nothing better than when authors themselves almost have a better story than what they write.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So this is a bit of a breakaway from our usual writing process or evaluation of speculative fiction. This is looking at authors behind things. Um, Now, lots and lots of authors have had weird stuff happen to them that isn't explained. Um, Mm -hmm. we can't cover all of them. So we've picked four and we've picked authors who are deceased and whose works are largely in the public domain or very nearly. But if you like the topic, let us know because we can always revisit it with new authors in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those ones where this is the kind of stuff which has inspired stories onto themselves, essentially. Now, what what we're going to do is, is, as a little caveat, we will state the facts as they are known. The theories as they've been posed, and we're going to we'll draw conclusions from there. Um, but obviously, this is opinion. We are not posited... We're not positing this as a definitive answer in any of these cases. Um, So it may very well be that you've seen a film or you've seen something documentary about these instances which disagrees with us. And that's fine. All we can do is speculate because that's the nature of the stories. That's what makes them so interesting. Um, We can only speculate because we don't necessarily know what happened. Um, most of these cases will never have a definitive answer. Um, and we can't ask the people involved for very obvious reasons. Um, the most prominent being that they're dead and very difficult to get through on a Ouija board. Trust me, lines are... (laughs) Um, as always, we do recommend that you do do your own research and draw your own conclusions. Um, but we thought we'd share ours. Yes.
1: Okay. So without further ado, let's start with the strange death of Edgar Allan Poe.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So, let's start with the facts ab- about Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, first of all, for those who don't know who Edgar Allan Poe is, I'm surprised. Quoth the Raven. Um, he was <laughs> a <laughs> he was a um horror writer um he wasn't just a horror writer but he he's known particularly for for his horror he's also known as the father of detective fiction he was the person who uh, it's some people believe is the first person to really sort of write detective fiction um and this is how he died so these are the facts as we know them so on october the third of 1849 a man named Joseph W. Walker, who was a um, compositor for the Baltimore Sun, headed to the Gunners Hall to see um, to election preparations. When he arrived, he found a very shabbily dressed man, delirious and half conscious, lying in the gutter. As you do. This man was author and poet, none other than the poet of Edgar Allan Poe, The very concerned Walker stopped and asked if he could help. Poe gave him the address of a magazine editor called Joseph E. Um, Snodgrass, which is a fantastic name. Um, (laughs) um, And Snodgrass had some medical training. So Walker immediately wrote to Snodgrass for help. A week earlier, on September the 27th, Poe had um... left Richmond, Virginia heading for Philadelphia and a collection of poems he had promised to edit for Mrs. St. Leon Loud. When Walker found Poe, it was the first anyone had seen or heard of him since his departure.
1: Now, during the four days between Walker discovering him and his death on the 7th of October 1849, Poe never regained sufficient mental acuity to explain what had happened to him in the intervening time. So, our big mystery is what caused his disappearance and death and we have 10 main theories
0: so number one is he was beaten this is not beyond the realms of possibility he wasn't particularly well liked
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's not beyond the realms of possibility um it could have been that he it doesn't explain why he was in Baltimore when he should have been in in New York. Mm. Um, so that that's a bit sort of how on. it doesn't explain the, the missing time or anything. But it's entirely possible that the reason he ended up in the gutter looking like he did was he'd been beaten and robbed or whatever and had to walk the rest of the way to Baltimore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a possibility, although it doesn't explain some other things for me. Um, the second theory is cooping. Now, cooping was a method used during the 19th century in America to fraudulently stuff voting boxes, ballot boxes. Mm-hmm. What happened was, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, uh, a person was taken and disguised, <laughs> so I'm going to laugh at this, and disguised and sent in to vote under another name for mm-hmm. the person that the Coopers wanted them to vote for. Um, yeah. Quite often, this the person, the coupé, if you will, was sent in several times under numerous disguises. So, in my head, I've got a person wearing very many different moustaches. And
2: things, yes, it's and the Bugs it all gets Bunny a bit Scooby Doo. Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: it is the Bugs Bunny sort of like. Yes, you had a monocle, and it's a completely different person. No, I haven't seen a rabbit. It went that way. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, now. It's possible that Edgar Allan Poe was kidnapped off the road and they didn't recognise him, even though he was quite famous. Mm-hmm. And his picture had appeared in various newspapers and said, oh, he'll make a really great person to put it in as a false voter. And mm-hmm. he was forced to do it, which I mean, it would kind of explain the shabby secondhand clothes he was wearing, maybe. Yeah. Um, and also it might explain his disoriented state because quite often they were plied with alcohol to make them compliant. Mm-hmm. So it it's possible maybe.
0: <laughs> maybe it is, yeah. Um another very big maybe. possibility um is just alcohol in general. So a little bit about Edgar Allan Poe. Um Edgar Allan Poe had had a fair amount of tragedy in his life. Um and he did have a drinking problem. He he also had a bit of a money problem, a gambling problem. Um and yeah he did have a a big drinking problem um in particular he had a very big drinking problem following the death of his wife um so it was it's entirely plausible that um he did just basically give himself alcohol poisoning that he had been on a massive bender that he he'd gone through one of his um turns had drunk an incredible amount, had gotten lost, and had then essentially, you know, turned up where he where he was.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, the, we'll say one thing about Edgar Allan Poe. He wasn't actually an alcoholic, and generally when there wasn't something incredibly traumatic happening in his life, he didn't drink because... Friends reported that he just couldn't hold alcohol, as in he would be drunk on a single glass of wine. Mm. So he had a very adverse reaction on him. He didn't like to touch it, and he had members of his family who were the same way. So there could have been some sort of inherited hypoglycemia, so a type of diabetes that re- reacted very specifically to the sugars in alcohol and made him act very erratically.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: So, I always, I always thought again, he was an that's,
0: alcoholic. That's that's always what I'd been, no, what no, I learned.
1: I think, I no, I think he had periods where he did drink heavily, and heavily for Edgar Allan Poe would have made Byron snort into his yeah his pint <laughs> basically because he was a, he was a complete lightweight. He actually couldn't hold his liquor. I think a lot of people thought he was alcoholic because a single glass would make him very drunk.
2: Yeah, um, oh, but well, that doesn't
1: preclude the fact that he went out on a bender. Overdid yeah. it and 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 ended up, up in a gutter. Yeah, <laughs> in Baltimore. A, a sort
0: of, he definitely had moments where he was a bit more alcoholic dependent, or, or sorry, alcohol dependent, or where he would he would turn to it again, usually as a as a cause of some kind of trauma, because he had had quite a lot of trauma in his life.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So another theory is carbon monoxide poisoning, which. You know, some of the symptoms kind of make sense, you know, the irrationality, the fact that he died four days later, the fact he never really regained mental acuity. It's possible. It's just not terribly likely. I mean, we're not talking about a massive industrial revolution at the time. So Mm -hmm. his chances of encountering the sort of carbon monoxide in an enclosed space that you would need at that point, unless someone had done it to him deliberately, which, again, is quite difficult, is just not very likely.
0: Yeah, you'd have to question where he'd been and what exactly he'd been doing in order to get carbon monoxide poisoning.
1: Yeah, he'd flash forward into the future, shut himself in someone's car in a garage somewhere and run the engine with a hose pipe going from the exhaust, you know.
0: Yeah. So,
1: (laughs) Just not very likely.
0: Yeah, not very likely at all. Uh, but it is still posited as a possibility. Uh, another one is actually heavy metal poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yes. Now, when we say heavy metal, we don't mean that he had a surfeit of Iron Maiden. We mean, obviously, that he might have taken too much tincture of mercury. Yes. <laughs> um mercury was used to treat a number of conditions at the time including things like syphilis which you know we're not positing that edgar Allan poe was a syphilis sufferer but it you know mercury was also used to treat things like tuberculosis um which surprisingly is not terribly effective in doing
0: (laughs) yeah weirdly enough just just drinking liquid metal is a terrible idea um tuberculosis is very much but i mean it, his wife died Especially, from tuberculosis didn't she was it tb she died from
1: his first wife yeah
0: yeah his first wife
1: yeah. i think it was it was tb
0: yeah
1: um yeah so you know the the heavy metal poisonings again not not terribly likely uh, another theory is rabies mm. um but having read the report i don't think this is very likely none of his symptoms correspond with hydrophobia so none of them actually correspond with with what we'd know as rabies we don't know that there was any sign that he'd been bitten by a dog or a bat or anything like that yeah um, merely being erratic and badly dressed in a gutter does not equal <laughs> someone coming down with rabies or afraid
0: yeah. I mean that could just be me on a Tuesday yeah? <laughs> casual
2: Tuesday badly, badly dressed, dressed in a gutter,
0: <laughs> erratic in a gutter yep that's <laughs> my day-to-day um so yeah another possibility is that he he might have had a brain tumor um this is not beyond the realms of possibility um obviously they you know they they did an investigation a medical investigation when they when he was in care but again this is you know we're talking about the sort of the mid 1800s here the the medical expertise was still well as previously stated (laughs) you've got tb drink liquid metal so you know (laughs) that they were going to be a little bit limited in what they could tell and what they couldn't tell so if it was an incredibly large tumor if they did they perform an autopsy on him no they didn't
1: did they not Uh, no autopsies were not routinely performed necessarily um, and certainly not on respectable people. Mm. It's one of those things. So unless it was, they thought su- foul play was suspected, and it wasn't obvious. Mm. Um, in in the mid eighteen hundreds, no, it wasn't a routine thing. Uh, the other thing was that almost nothing was known about the brain at that particular time. Yeah. Um, the things that had been learned about the brain, sort of, had been, were very very slipshod. Experiments run on um, women incarcerated in asylums and things like that. So, yeah. again, it, it wasn't terribly well understood. Um, the brain tumor theory actually came much later. Um, mm. I will explain later why I think that one is is a probable one, though. Yeah. Um, the next theory is that he succumbed to influenza. Um, for me, again weirdly this is actually quite unlikely because influenza as we know it didn't really exist as a disease in the same way that covid didn't exist as a disease in the same way as mm. covid19 now does Yeah, um, until the 1900s so he, di- he died of something that might have been a respiratory tract infection that might have led to a chest infection it- it's possible Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really explain some of his other symptoms or where his missing time went.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, the, then the, there's the old the old chestnut, um, which is very popular, which is that he was murdered. Now, fun little fact about Edgar Allan Poe: um, it's said, and again, we can only assume this for, for sort of from reports, so this might not actually be true. But it's said that. Before he died, he kept repeating the name um Reynolds, yeah, so yeah, the night before he died, he just kept saying Reynolds um and no one was able to figure out who the hell Reynolds was. Um, no there was no one in his acquaintance called reynolds um and there was yeah no one could figure out who reynolds was supposed to be and that's been one of the big mysteries about his death is is why he kept saying the name reynolds who is reynolds
1: yeah definitely um another theory that goes with the hand in hand with the murder was that the brothers of his wife-to-be because let's remember edgar Allan poe obviously after editing the poems was on his way to escort his aunt down to uh, Virginia mm-hmm. in order for her to attend his wedding to his forthcoming, to his, to his forthcoming marriage to his second wife, which obviously didn't happen, yeah, uh, because he died. Um, but it was said that her brothers were not keen on the on her marrying him, and the one theory is that they caught up with him on the road and and beat him until he was half out of his mind yeah um, he escaped, and then later died of complications due to that beating. Mm.
0: yeah again, not beyond the realms of possibility, as I said, he wasn't actually that popular as it, he was a popular writer, but as a person, he was <laughs> very difficult to deal with.
1: He was very difficult to deal with definitely um final theory um I've just written Lenore now, I don't mean the fabric conditioner, okay,
0: guys. <laughs> um you heard it here first Lenore (laughs) (laughs) fabric conditioner killed famous writer Edgar Allan Poe in the 1850s um if
1: you're familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's work you'll be familiar with a a poem where he talks about a woman who is clearly some sort of evil entity a seductress um a beautiful woman who is sort of vampiric in her energy mm. who he doesn't want to who you know the, per- the the subject of the poet is doesn't want to go close to but is kind of drawn to who mm. has this romantic horrified fascination for um, she is kind of the, the absolute devil woman kind of thing mm-hmm. so um but the most ultra of these is that Edgar Allan Poe was writing about a real entity and it finally caught up with him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a really fun, well, obviously not for Edgar Allan Poe, but a really fun sort of idea for for writers and things. And I certainly know um, Kelly Cray kind of played on this with her trilogy when she wrote about um, Edgar Allan Poe's world sort of coming to life and drawing someone else in, a young goth. Cool. Um, because <laughs> let's face it, Edgar Allan Poe was kind of like a proto-goth, proto-emo Before, you know, the movement really sort of got going Yeah <laughs> So you can kind of see where she's coming from there um, Before we, we go on to what we personally think happened Our own personal preferences of these ten theories I think it's worth saying, reiterating as Madeleine said Edgar Allan Poe was not a popular person And also, yes, he suffered a lot of tragedy in his life, but he also monetized that tragedy. He used that as a marketing ploy, or, you know, he wouldn't have been called a marketing ploy back then. But he absolutely played into that, because that did actually give him a writer persona that he could base his career on. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He was also, like, just... (laughs) <laughs> having like, because i i i had to study him and I've, I've had to teach about him um as part of sort of classes and things like that and i've never like i love some of his writing but he was he was a bit of a scumbag not gonna yeah. lie bit of a scumbag um and also <laughs> he he married his cousin um, now you can say oh well marrying the cousins that age that that actually isn't the biggest problem i had with his first wife the biggest problem i had with his first wife is that she was 13 and they knew it was wrong because they literally lied to the priest about her age
1: yeah that's not great
0: it's not great at all it's
1: another one of these sensitive artistic types like percy bish shelley kind of yeah, thing going on sens- there yeah
0: um actually just just a bit of an arsehole. Um, and he would he would when he was going through it, you know even if he wasn't an alcoholic he would turn up to to work drunk and cause difficulties and problems he was argumentative um he broke up with his family because he was adopted into a family i believe yes. um and you know his father was very his his stepfather was very generous with him loved him very dearly um and and poe did abuse that a little bit he he also had he, he gambled as well when he was younger especially he gambled um he sort of messed things up in a sort of a military career etc um so yeah he he definitely was not well liked as a person at all
1: no there was there was something a little bit. Ethereal about him and not in a good way. He did mm. genuinely, in, and I knew he played up the persona to sell books and things, but he also genuinely didn't seem to manage to make connections with the world and reality in the right way. And, you know, we'll talk about that a bit more when we go into one of our other authors in a minute.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think it's really worth remembering that. And I also just want to mention the Poe toaster. If that person is still out there, hey. <laughs> The Poe toaster. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it on an episode before, but basically, um, Edgar Allan Poe was put in a fairly humble grave in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and for years that's where he was. And then three years after his burial, they decided that they directed a monument to him, and they were going to move him to a better location. Um, more about that in a minute. Cause that's that's great. And this <laughs> this monument for Edgar Allan Poe, um, there's actually a false grave and a new grave, and. Um, at one of these graves every year on the anniversary of his death the Poe toaster, um, a person shrouded in dark clothing, long coat and hat with features obscured, appears at the grave, pulls two measures of whiskey and leaves one on top of the grave for Edgar Allan Poe so um, no one's ever managed to work out who this person is and I don't think this person has appeared for about four years now but I always found that a little fascinating bit of trivia
0: That is, that is pretty cool just so, some people lurking
1: watching yeah so it it went from this st- because actually people still make pilgrimages to Edgar Allan Poe's grave on the anniversary of his death and on Halloween and now mm. people now go because they're trying to catch a glimpse of the Poe toaster <laughs> so it's kind of like mystery feeding itself
0: <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe would have wanted this <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it's, I mean, th- there's theories like it is actually Edgar Allan Poe and he didn't ever really die. He became something else through the whole <laughs> world that he created. Lenore was actually some sort of vampiric creature and she transformed him and he can never go back. Um, as I said, these things make great stories and if you guys want to take inspiration from that, you go for it. It's, hmm. it's very Edwin Drood. <laughs> um, okay, so what do the dragons think is the most likely cause of Edgar Allan Poe's death?
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm torn between two things, if I'm honest. Okay. Um, this is going to sound wrong, but I guess I kind of like the allure of murder.
1: Um, <laughs> of course you do. You would. You would.
0: <laughs> now, when I say murder, um, I, think it's, I think it's very possible that he was... That, that someone caused his death. That might not have actually been intentional at all. So it might very well be have been that, yes, he, he was, you know, he was there sort of in disguise because he was being forced to vote um, against his will. That's entirely possible, um, though, it, it again, the question of how did he end up in Baltimore? Like, why would they grab him in that particular place? Perhaps so that no one would recognise him. Who knows? Um, so that is possible i think it's very possible that yeah he was supplied with something that he was beaten um or you know or that he was i I, you've got to love the mystery of of someone outright murdering him uh this this reynolds it was ryan reynolds (laughs) went back into the past as deadpool um but you've got to love the mystery Um, I think it's it's very likely that it was uh, a brain tumour or that it was some kind of uh, perhaps alcohol related. And again, it might've been that he was allergic to alcohol. Um, It might've been that, you know, he had a mass reaction to something which kind of made him lose his head a little bit, which is why he ended up in Baltimore, which is why he might've, you know, swapped his clothes for something. He might've been going through a, a paranoid uh, you know, a paranoid delusion at one point, which caused him to sort of get into disguise, you know, change his trajectory. He might've thought he was being chased or he might've actually been chased. There's a lot of mystery there. So I think I think that's possible. Um, but I think in all likelihood, he was probably sick in some way. He had probably had a brain tumor or he was having a reaction to something which was causing some kind of delusion at the time um which is ha- why he ended up where he ended up and why he died
1: yeah okay well my theory the one that i favor most as much as i love the whole lenore thing
0: mm, yeah i've um, gotta i've gotta admit that one's a that one's a tasty one
1: <laughs> so i love it but um i think it's most likely that he had a brain tumor and the reason i think this is based on what we know of his his actions throughout his life and in the days running up to his death and also sort of posthumously. Um, Basically, um, you can have a brain tumour that people consider benign because it's not actually growing or doing anything, but a a tumour in your brain is never really fully benign and it can at some point decide to go malignant, not spreading Mm. to the rest of the body, but growing in itself, taking up more space in your brain and causing strange changes in your behaviour. It can do things like it can make you see things differently it can make you hallucinate. It can make you react strangely to foods or drinks or things like alcohol. It can make you prone to sudden changes of mood and temperament, so uh, tantrums. Um, it can make you want to engage in erratic and restle- reckless behaviour, so things like gambling. Yeah. And in the wrong circumstances, someone might set out from Richmond, Virginia in heading for new york and end up in baltimore having lost time in the middle because something shifted in the brain and that tiny bit of pressure made it perfectly logical for them to take a series of actions that they would not normally have taken if they'd been perfectly healthy yeah um thing that i would say posthumously obviously we didn't know very much about the brain back in 1849 um i talked about them burying edgar Allan poe uh, when they dug him up three years afterwards, he'd not. the coffin had not fared very well in the damp ground mm-hmm. and neither had Edgar Allan Poe's body. There wasn't very much of it left. Right. They tried to remove it anyway, but the entire thing, the coffin with him in it, fell apart. And the man who was tasked with grabbing the skull, retrieving the skull before it rolled away completely, said that it was strange. There was a hard mass rolling around inside the skull. Now, we know that when a human body, or any body in fact, uh, decomposes, the brain is one of the first things to go. So mm-hmm. don't believe the walking dead, the brain is the first thing that goes. <laughs> it's soft, it's squidgy, it's largely gelatinous and pro- protonaceous. Of course, it's the first thing that starts to really decompose. Um, so, the only, but under certain circumstances, a hard lump of tumorous material mm-hmm. would just calcify and call and, and form a large hard lump that would remain within a skull even several years after the rest of the body's decomposed so the fact that there was this thing rattling around in the skull uh, with all his other behavior and the missing time which could be explained by nobody to mm-hmm. me that sounds like a brain tumor as much as I would really like it to be Lenore
0: yeah unless Lenore gave him the brain tumor. <laughs>
1: Okay, so obviously, guys, do your own research. As we've said, form your own conclusions. We will now move on to another author.
0: (laughs) Also, I've just realised, right, Castlevania, Lenore is named after that Lenore. Yep. I did not realise that. I'm really thick. Cool. (laughs) Okay, so that's the mystery of Edgar Allan Poe. What do you think happened to him? Please do leave us a comment and let us know. So on to our next big mystery... Agatha Christie's missing days
1: okay so the facts on December the 3rd 1929 Agatha Christie left her home in Sunningdale Berkshire leaving her seven-year-old daughter Rosalind asleep and alone but with a servant in their house the following day her car which was a Morris Crowley was found at Newlands Corner parked above a chalk quarry the car had been wrecked and contained only some of Agatha's clothes and her expired driving license. There was no sign of Agatha Christie. The previous August, Archie Christie, her husband, had asked his wife for a divorce, having fallen in love with his mistress, Nancy Neal. The night of the disappearance, Archie and Agatha had quarrelled. Archie had left in his car at around 9.45pm, and Agatha had been well and in good health then. As the inquiry heated up, Archie and his mistress came under suspicion. He had means, motive and opportunity. Agatha was popular. It looked like he had murdered his wife and done away with her body. It was hugely publicised. Fellow authors Dorothy L Sayers and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got involved. Sayers visited the site of the disappearance looking for clues. Doyle consulted a spirit medium with one of Agatha's gloves. No leads were forthcoming from either of those instances.
0: I just love that Arthur Conan Doyle is is there a mystery Arthur Conan Doyle is definitely involved
1: absolutely gotta be in there I love the fact that sort of like it was the mystery writers yeah guys just sort of like piled in trying to solve things
0: yeah, anyway. it's, it, it's it's also, it's got to be said, this is something that Agatha Christie wrote a lot about, is that she often had writers who would sort of get involved, you know, with Poirot and stuff like that and come forward. And some of them were ludicrous and some of them were were actually quite good. So I feel like she was definitely drawing from some experiences of her contemporary <laughs> mystery writers.
1: Okay, Um. finally, 11 days later, on the 14th of December 1926, a bellhop at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel in Harrogate recognised one of the guests as Agatha Christie from the published photos in the newspaper. Christie, however, had registered as Teresa Neal from Cape Town. She claimed to have no memory of the intervening 11 days. Two doctors examined her and confirmed that she had a genuine loss of memory. So, what happened and why was she registered under the surname of her husband's
0: mistress? Again, again well medical medicine's a little bit better um obviously than uh in our previous example um because we're almost you know 75 years later um but i i still i still wonder how you can conclude yep that's genuine memory loss
1: yeah i mean okay let's look at the four theories one 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 after the other (laughs) yeah let's
0: look at the four theories okay so theory number one which is after a car accident agatha suffered a genuine loss of memory took a train to harrogate and booked into a hotel with a name playing on her mind which she assumed was her own
1: see the idea of someone sort of who suffered a head injury um it, we do know that you know you can have a sort of selective amnesia that does happen when you get a head injury you know? yeah. it, it's nowhere near as common as, as was portrayed in films of the mm. sort of 1950s or cartoons and things mm-hmm. um, but it's possible and it's possible that in a sort of disordered state she took a train somewhere which would be quite sensible booked into a hotel couldn't remember her name assumed it was a name very similar to that of her husband's mistress, and there's a good reason why that name would be playing on her mind, so... Yeah. It's not likely, but I'm not going to say it's impossible. Yes. Um, okay, second theory. She entered a depressive fugue state caused by the marital argument and stress over her husband's infidelity, got in the car, drove off, and everything else that happened then happened.
0: Fugue states are weird, because we, we do have... We definitely have records of them happening no one really knows what they are.
1: <laughs> no, it's very difficult. It's, it's in the same way that people use nervous breakdown. We don't use nervous breakdown now because what we mean by nervous breakdown is a psychotic break. Now, don't think when I say psychotic break, that means someone going and shooting up a McDonald's because it's, that's not what it means. What a psychotic break is somebody suffering something traumatic mm-hmm. and then undergoing a break with reality and acting in a way contrary to their character. Um, not necessarily in a harmful way to anybody but just literally having a falling down type moment and um, nothing seems real and you know you could be so disconnected from reality that you could conceivably enter a fugue state where you don't really know who you are or what you're doing but what you're doing seems logical the brain is very strange
0: yeah Um, and you know it could also be doing that you know to preserve herself um i mean the other things of okay people could say oh but you know i can understand the surname but where does she get the rest of it she's a writer this may very well have been a character which you know from a late from a novel that she was working on or something like that and it all just sort of came together it's entirely possible um the next theory is that This was a brilliant mystery novel writer who was deliberately setting up a situation in order to entrap her husband and his mistress, um, either as revenge or to provide leverage to stop him leaving. Um, It might also have been for blackmail purposes.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of people wanted to subscribe to the woman scorned theory. Mm. Um, And you know what? I almost kind of wouldn't have blamed her because it was very difficult, particularly for a woman, to be divorced. In the 1920s, and you know this—it was the—the the advice was that you let your husband continue his affairs without very much interruption, because as long as he wasn't trying to leave or anything, then
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know you still were the respectable one. But obviously, yeah. this caused an awful lot of resentment, and it was very difficult for women themselves to get a divorce under any other grounds than they found out their husband was homosexual, for example. Yeah. So yes that's that's very very um awkward and do i believe that she was um mentally capable of doing something like that yes because she was clearly something of a genius at setting up mystery mysteries Mm. um even now we read her books and watch the adaptations and things and and they're very very clever and they're all plausible as well that's the amazing thing her mysteries are plausible yeah um but the 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 whole here is that that would have to be someone so committed to revenge that she was happy to just abandon her 7-year-old daughter and also what was what was stage 2 of the plan was stage yeah. 2 of the plan to completely assume a new identity and then sort of send her husband letters from beyond the grave kind of thing really to really freak him out yeah. because okay that's kind of a cool cruel a cool plan but at the same time seven-year-old daughter that you've just left and you've left everything else as well that's a bit weird
0: yeah no i agree i agree um the final theory (laughs) is is of course the most obvious one uh which is that she was abducted by mystery novel loving aliens
1: I included this one a bit tongue in cheek, but I've got to say that there are a lot of people who genuinely do believe she was abducted by some sort of supernatural or outerworldly force.
0: Maybe it was Lenore.
1: <laughs> maybe it was Lenore. Yeah, Lenore <laughs> collects writers, that's what it's about. It's kind of like Edgar Allan Poe really gave me a taste for the detective novel, and now I'm after another one.
0: <laughs> it's Lenora Lenanchi. <laughs> it's entirely possible it's actually i have to go back and
1: read the poem and then we can compare <laughs> notes and see what you think
0: <laughs> okay so what do the dragons think okay well i'll go first um honestly i think she ran away i think she ran away um we know that there were moments where she was suicidal. She describes these moments of being suicidal. Also moments where she describes having these kind of breaks from reality, where she had this sort of sense of, of feeling threatened or kind of sensing this, that there was a threat. Or I think even she would sometimes talk about a man being there who wasn't necessarily there. Um, and she also writes about the fact that at one point she did drive to the chalk quarry and she was in the car um, and she was she was going she suddenly just thought i can just drive off the edge here and the only thing that stopped her was the fact that her daughter was in the car with her yeah um she didn't have a particularly close relationship with her daughter because she was you know concentrating a lot on her writing that's not to say that she didn't love her daughter of course she loved her daughter Um, well as far as we can guess i think she did love her daughter but i think that she was suicidal at times, and one of the things that some people who are suicidal, sometimes that doesn't always come forward as a, right, I'm literally gonna kill myself. Sometimes it can be, I'm going to run away. Um, I think what happened was that she drove to the quarry. She was thinking about killing herself of that, in that moment. Um, and in the end, she didn't, she might've swerved, she might've had a car accident or something instead. She got out of the car, Realised she was too afraid to actually kill herself but still didn't want to be in her life so i think without without necessarily a you know i think she might it might very well have been well this this will make him suffer kind of thing but i don't think it was premeditated i don't think it was a um you know uh, too much of a thing um or she might have just been trying to run away from the start she might not even been trying to kill herself but i think that she was just running away Um, she checked in because she kind of wanted to be alone she wasn't thinking of the long term she was just thinking of the short term in that moment um, and trying to run away and then she was kind of embarrassed but also she could say yeah I wasn't a bit of a fugue state I wasn't in my right mind Um, I just knew that I had to get away um, and that I couldn't be the person that I was Um, and perhaps projecting to the kind of the person that she wanted to be instead.
1: Yeah, I think my conclusion is very similar. Mm. As in, I I think she may well have suffered some sort of um, minor psychotic break mm. in the sense of, yeah, I need to get away. I mean, people talk about depression, but there's a different type of high-functioning depression called dysthemia. Mm. And generally what characterises it is that you suffer it for years and years and years. And you can, whereas depre- with depression, you can say, yeah, the last time I felt happy was X, Y and Z. Um, with dysthemia you generally feel that you've never really been happy you can't remember a time and you Mm. can function perfectly well it it doesn't affect you in the same way that major depressive episodes do but it can make you quite fragile to things that are very traumatic and you know she'd only have to have something like a minor abandonment complex um for this this argument to sort of tip her off the edge as it were yeah so um um, I don't want to just throw around words for mental health, but yeah, I think she might have had a bit of a break with reality and, and as you say, tried to run away. Tried to run away from herself as much as anything else. Yes, that that's my theory. I realise it's not as exciting as Alien Abduction <laughs> or Doctor Who.
0: Yeah. Again, like the, this has actually been used in fiction. The Edgar Allan Poe one has been used in fiction. There was actually a recent film uh, and I've just forgotten what it was called, uh, where it, there's a serial killer who's copying all of the the murders from Edgar Allan Poe's books and so he's brought in to kind of solve the mystery on the on the low and yeah um and he gets murdered so that that was that was actually quite a good story um (laughs) Edgar Allan Poe was a lot more handsome in that movie than in reality um and yeah there's 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 been other versions of uh, of Agatha Christie's um, disappearance. I think there was actually a movie which was that she actually went away in order to actually solve a a mystery. She was hired to solve a mystery. Um and so she did it on the down low. Um okay. So the next one is the scandalous affair of Branwell Bronte. That sounds like an Agatha Christie book, yeah. um, to be honest.
1: It does, It does, doesn't does it? Okay, um, I think if Madeline doesn't mind, I'm going to field this one just because I'm a bit more immersed in this,
0: possibly. Oh, go for it, go for it. So
1: Branwell... <laughs> Branwell was the fourth child of Reverend Patrick Bronte, um, who also fathered Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte. Mm-hmm. He was often overlooked in favour of his more famous younger siblings by um, literary historians. Um, he was very intelligent, he was gifted, and he was expected to do very well. He was actually a very talented young man, um, possibly slightly repressive upbringing, um, but basically it's an understatement to say things did not pan out that way. Mm. Now, I wanted. to take a little side step here and just talk a tiny bit about epilepsy and chronic migraine suffering um simply because it's quite likely that Branwell had a form of epilepsy mm. and he certainly suffered from chronic migraine as did Charlotte throughout her life epilepsy and migraine are comorbid with each other mm-hmm. so if you suffer from migraine, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got epilepsy, but if you suffer from epilepsy, chances are you will suffer from chronic migraine. Mm. Um, back in the 1840s, we're back to Ed- Edgar Allan Poe's time, but in Britain <laughs> this time. Um, back in the 1840s, if you had epilepsy, then you were generally locked up in an asylum because the kindest interpretation of that is that it couldn't be treated. The unkindest interpretation was that you were either it was considered a form of madness, or mm. you were, in some extreme respects, considered to be possessed. Yeah. Um, so the fact that Patrick Bronte kept his son home and tried to treat him himself, um, this is partly why Branwell didn't go off to school. We we know he had at least a couple two proper tonic-clonic seizures. The tonic-clonic seizures are way you actually fall. Mm-hmm. and the, the ones that everyone thinks about when you say epileptic seizures they seem to have tapered off as he reached adulthood enough that patrick thought him going branwell going off to make his mark in the world um would pan out okay um but we know that branwell suffered from terrible terrible crippling headaches in the same way that charlotte also did um we're also feeling can be fairly sure that Branwell probably suffered from partial complex seizures, which they don't make you fall, but they can have all sorts of effects. Now, reading his writing, reading letters written about him, reading things about his supposed condition, to me, it reads very much like he had a similar type of epilepsy to me, which, Mm. unfortunately, one of its major things, other than being comorbid with depressive states is that it detaches you from a sense of reality. <laughs> um, and if you get really hung up on a point, you can believe that is far more likely than what is actually happening. Mm. So we'll come back to that. The only other thing you need to know about this potential condition that I I genuinely believe he did suffer this was that it was treated at the time with laudanum.
2: Ah, <laughs>
1: So Branwell had been taking laudanum on and off since his late childhood. And I think it's worth remembering that. Anyway, Branwell did not make a great splash in the workplace. Um, He had a number of failures. He kept having to return home for various reasons. But I'll give you the main points. His father secured him a position as a private tutor to the Postlethwaite family. He managed to last there just over a year maybe two years i think it was and then he was sacked now if you read the letters written around the time both by branwell and by his father and by other people who spoke about branwell it doesn't sound like he was just sacked it sounds like he was very dishonorably discharged and then run out of town mm. um, juliet barker who is one of the foremost autobiographers of the sorry foremost biographers of the brontes has done a bit of brilliant detective work and it looks like Branwell might have fathered an illegitimate child on one of the servants of the house. The child ah. also died. Um, if you look at Brownwell's writing, his poetry um, I think it's called Note from a Father to His Child in Heaven talking about how um, his child is better off now that she's dead. She doesn't have to suffer the indignities and hurts of being alive. That could have been fanciful or it mm. could have been literally talking about the fact that he had fathered an illegitimate child who died. There's also a chance that he... I mean, uh, we need to bear in mind that he was 19 or 20 at this point in time. So he, mm. he went from growing up at a vicarage where he was mostly surrounded by females other than his father, um, to being out in the world on his own, making his own choices, falling in with rowdy friends, being on regular amounts of laudanum and other opiates... And starting the whole drinking culture thing, which, you know, is not unusual for a 19, 20-year-old at all. No. Nowadays. But back then would have been quite scandalous in the same way that casual sex with a, with someone, particularly someone who wasn't of your class and therefore you couldn't marry them. Mm. So, yeah, that that's not a great look for him, but I can understand why he might have gone from one thing to another. And yeah. And, and done these things, but it appears he then went on and got another girl pregnant, and there were claims up until quite recently that someone was a descendant of Branwell Brontë's illegitimate child by ex person as well. So he had a checkered career before he even really got going. Um,
0: <laughs> wow, well done. He <laughs> then
1: had he then <laughs> he had a promotion. He then worked for the Luddenfort Railway. As a clerk, and then he was promoted to being clerk in charge at the princely wage of 130 pounds a year, which was actually a pretty good wage at the time. Mm. Um, he certainly had more opportunities open to him as a man than his sisters ever did or ever would. Mm. He was sacked from that position because there was a deficit in accounts. So eleven shillings six sorry, eleven pounds six shillings and sixpence, which is just over a thousand pounds in today's money, was missing. Um, it's quite likely it was stolen by the porter watson but since branwell was off drinking when he should have been in the shop minding affairs as it were he was dismissed for dereliction of duty um luckily for him it was attributed to mismanagement rather than theft so he, he didn't face criminal prosecution um anyway of of the Brontes, the only one who'd really done very well at that point at being a being a governess was Anne Bronte, the youngest, and the one who actually is kind of least regarded, even though she was the steadiest. And she managed to get Branwell a position as a post as a tutor to Reverend Edmund Robinson's eleven year old son at Thorpe Green in January eighteen forty three. Hmm. Um, this is where things get bad. <laughs>
0: <Basically>, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, they get bad now. <laughs>
1: they get bad now um he worked there for 30 months during that time he conceived an infatuation for his boss's wife Lydia Robinson who was 15 years his senior so by this point Branwell's 25 um some people have said oh he was short and red-haired but you know not bad looking and other people have said he was short and red-haired and Irish and actually not actually terribly appealing at all He's actually been described as ferrety by at least one person who knew him. (laughs) And he, unfortunately, he already had a reputation for boasting and and fantasizing at that time amongst his friends. I mean, if you actually read some of Branwell's letters, they're the sort of things you would expect to to see written by a 14 year old boy. A 14 year old boy still wrote letters. So he Mm. was very immature for his age. Right. Anyway, over the next couple of years, he wrote to his friends talking about this charming, sophisticated woman whom he started to refer to as his mistress. Um, and in one such letter, if I find the right thing, basically, he said, my mistress is too damnably fond of me by half. Um, she has given me a lock of her hair to have and keep with me always. It rests on my chest as I lie in bed at night. Wish that it, that it could do so legally. So he's, talk- he's really, really infatuated with this woman yeah um and he wrote a poem to lydia gisborne as well so it's in his poetry um anyway things go on and anne was so embarrassed by her brother's behavior that she handed her notice in eventually she said she couldn't she wouldn't talk to anyone about it she didn't want to be indiscreet but she felt that she could not stay and watch the way branwell was acting and, you know, she confessed as much to her father. Everyone gives Patrick Bronte a really rough time, but he was actually an incredibly open-minded, um, liberal person who was really quite understanding with his children. Yeah. <laughs> he gets a, he gets bad rap, but he was actually an incredibly good father. Uh, so she went back home to Haworth, and then in July 1845, Branwell was dismissed in disgrace with a sternly worded letter to the effect that his behaviour was found out. He was to cease all communication with every member of the family forthwith. Anyway, he returned to Haworth and his his father, where he descended into addiction, ill health and debt. On the 24th of December, 1848, Branwell died, most likely of tuberculosis, exacerbated by things like delirium tremens, alcoholism and opiate addiction.
0: What a way to go. So
1: those are the facts. (laughs)
0: So I've gotta ask. I've gotta ask. Um was he actually having an affair?
1: Well, that is the mystery. Because the only person's word we've got for it that an affair ever took place is Branwell's. Mm. And we know that Branwell was not a reliable witness to his own life. Um now Partly that may have been down to what I suspect was undiagnosed temporal lobe epilepsy.
2: Mm.
1: Partly that was down to the fact that he was always on laudanum and opiates definitely affect your ability to perceive reality correctly. Um, Partly it was because he, like Charlotte, had come from a relatively repressed beginning and then... They both of them conceived these tremendous passions for people who would never ever love them back, Mm. who were not available. He was desperately in love with the idea of being in love with someone. And an illicit romance would have been something that he absolutely would have fantasised about as a sort of teenager.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The only bit of evidence that anyone has ever postulated for Lydia Robinson's involvement with him was a letter to her solicitor, which is written in quite oblique terms saying that, you know, it sort of suggests she was very embarrassed by Branwell's behaviour and that, you know, her son might have seen more than he ought to have done. Now, the thing is, I find that a very thin evidence because a woman in Victorian England who was 42 or possibly a little older by this point... Mm -hmm who had five children who actually was very fond of her husband she might not have been wildly in love with him and he was older so perhaps he wasn't sexually very satisfying anymore, I don't know mm-hmm. this is the suggestion from other people but she was still she still had a good relationship with him good enough that he took her part and he wrote letters to lawyers and to he basically sent out cease and desist lawyers to, to Branwell
2: mm-hmm.
1: saying you've got to stop contacting my wife, this isn't appropriate Um, if she had genuinely I mean yeah you can say he wouldn't divorce her because of the way that it it would embarrass him but it would embarrass him far more to keep a wife who had committed adultery with a 25 year old tutor of her son yeah so I think that letter is referring to the fact that yes she'd become aware of his behaviour and finally got to the point where she had to report it because he was sexually harassing her this fantasy had grown to the stage where um, he was acting on something that genuinely wasn't there. Yeah. Is the... So, here we go. These are the four theories. So, Branwell was dismissed for having an inappropriate relationship with a member of the family, um, either one of the sons or daughters, which isn't terribly likely, or, as Branwell claimed, with Mrs Lydia Robinson herself. Hmm. Um, that just doesn't really hold water when you look at Branwell's character and the, the, you know, the medical things that he had against him Um, and the fact that pretty much everyone came out. Basically, if you were a woman and you committed adultery, everybody kicked you to the curb. So the fact that everybody rallied around her, it doesn't, the difference, the slight, they weren't actually of a different class. I mean, he was... She was from a wealthier background, but yeah. they were technically the same class because, you know, she was married to a, a vicar as well. Mm. So it's just... It it doesn't smell right. It yeah. doesn't pass the smell test.
0: doesn't pass the smell test.
1: It doesn't to me, <laughs> it's anyway. disgusting.
0: But thank you. Uh, yeah. No, it is a really, really interesting one. And certainly, from what you say, and also just, you know, from the perspective of someone who's got their own, you know experience i i would i would say that yeah to me it does sound a lot like he he suffered from epilepsy
1: yeah i mean it does to me um okay so the other other theories are that branwell was telling the truth about all of it he had an illicit affair with mrs robinson Mm -hmm. which was discovered i have to say the only shred of evidence for this is that she sent him small sums of money after he was dismissed And we know that she was quite kind to him. She was quite kind to Anne as well. Mm. Anne wasn't terribly impressed with Mrs. Robinson's intellect. And she initially wrote quite a snooty letter. But what you have to remember about the Bronte siblings was they had a slightly unhealthy codependent relationship with each other. And it was very difficult to break in and actually be friends with one of them. Mm. So her being so far from home and finding someone who was perhaps a bit more frivolous in her temperament, and perhaps not as intelligent as Anne was, because Anne, Anne was an intellectual powerhouse as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Might explain that initial snooty letter. She certainly wrote about her far more complimentary terms um much later on. And, you know, Anne was well liked by her pupils and by Mrs. Robinson herself. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. If we assume that Branwell was telling the truth, then the only evidence is that she sent him money afterwards. But we know that she was kind to him, and she felt bad. And presumably, she noticed that there was something very wrong with his health.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think it. I think it's reasonable to assume she might have just been doing a kindness because she felt like well, because she felt responsible for the situation that he was in. Of course, there's the you know there's the other. Idea that's put forward, which was that there was, you know, there might have been some unconsummated flirtation. Um, you know, she might have been kind to him. She might have even sort of actually appreciated his his advances or his interest. You know, yes, did,
1: without ever acting on it,
0: without ever acting on it, just appreciated the fact that she was being appreciated, and it might very well have been that Branwell blew it out of proportion.
1: Yeah, so those are our. Those are our basic four theories. Branwell had an, in, uh, an illicit relationship with someone in the family who wasn't Mrs. Robinson. Branwell was telling the truth and did actually sleep with Mrs. Robinson. Or three. I think that's where the, the Simon and Garfunkel get that song from originally. It was kind of like the, the inspiration for The Graduate. Um Three, it was entirely in Branwell's head and there are medical reasons for this and his past behaviour plus addiction to various substances did not help. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, it was a little of both. There was an unconscious, unconsummated flirtation and it was enough for Branwell's fevered imagination to just complete over. So, what do the dragons think?
0: Well, I personally think that... I think that she was probably kind to him. She was probably nice to him. Um and he mis- misinterpreted that and let it grow out, of, grow out of proportion and basically had a just had a fantasy about the whole thing um yeah. i think that that's what happened um i think she was just being kind and friendly um and potentially appreciating his interest but i i honestly think also from the fact that from the way that she's described and the way that you know she was interpreted by others I think in all likelihood she just didn't realise that she was egging him on and then sort of felt responsible for it.
1: Yeah, quite possibly. Or maybe she simply felt that, you know, this is someone who's been good to my son and I hate seeing him in dire straits like this. Yeah. Um, did I encourage him without even realising it? I'm not sure with a woman of her age and experience that she would be completely unconscious, but it's not outside the realms of possibility. Um a lot of people jump straight to the idea that Branwell really was having an affair with her and she was responsible, ultimately, for his death um, because of the way he acted. But mm. I maintain he was an adult and whatever his medical problems and his you know, his, his mental health issues, because I think there was some of that there as well, mm-hmm. um, he's still the author of his own actions. And the way he went back, treated his family and literally threw himself at things like um, excessive opium and excessive alcohol and gambling and debt etc um, and then claimed that it was because she would not love him she could not leave her husband is an excuse for him to behave any way he wanted because he failed. Um, there's a lot of ugly sort of family dynamics there as well in the sense of his sisters by this point had got published and couldn't tell him about it in case they set him off in one of his tantrums yeah Um and the fact that his father had to sleep in his bed with Branwell because Branwell had nearly burned the house down by setting his bedclothes on fire. Um, Other things like Patrick would, you know, this was during the Luddite uprising. So Patrick went everywhere with loaded pistols because it wasn't unusual for priests, for vicars to get attacked and beaten. And, you know, he he would use the guns to frighten them off. Um, But the only way to unload those types of guns is to literally discharge the bullets. So he would go out into the garden every night and fire all four guns from the house into the air so that they weren't loaded, because several times Branwell had tried to kill himself by shooting himself with them um, during the night. So this was not a good time for anyone. And I think people leaped the idea of an illicit love story because they really like that idea i mean obviously she was a a more privileged woman than him she obviously led this young poet astray kind of thing without really seeing what a harmful thing that is to immediately assume that someone would do that
0: yeah yeah absolutely yeah honestly i think she was just a kind and decent person and he interpreted something incorrectly and then didn't want to yes. let it go
1: yeah, it it was obsession more than love as well, yeah. I think. And it's almost incel logic, some of it.
0: Yeah, it is. It's very incel logic.
1: So um, <laughs> now we're on to our fourth and final author, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the Cottingley Fairies. Take it away, Madeline.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay, so the Cottingley Fairies. I've mentioned this in the past, but let's go over it again. So here are the facts as we know them. Arthur Conan Doyle had a long-standing interest in the occult, the paranormal, and the mystical. He was a Freemason and a spiritualist. Um, He's known to have also consulted spirit mediums. um, And, you know, actually had a a big thing with Houdini because he believed that Houdini was magic and Houdini (laughs) said, no, I'm not, these are all tricks. Um, And the pair kind of bashed heads a lot about that um, for a number of reasons. while the death of his son Kingsley, um, this is Arthur Conan Doyle's son, not Houdini's, um, probably deepened the interest in the occult, um, Doyle presented himself as a spiritualist two years before Kings- Kingley's death in 1918. So this wasn't a new thing. It wasn't just a grief thing, though grief certainly probably um, sort of fed the flame he had already been um an occultist um and a a spiritualist not an occultist but he'd been interested in the occult and spiritualism before that uh we know he had um that interest uh like fox Mulder, he wanted to believe uh he was open to proof um you know he would take what he could get Uh, Now, here is the situation with the Cottingley Fairies. So, uh, 1917, two Bradford girls, um, Elsie Wright, who was 16, and Frances Griffith, who was 9, borrowed their father's camera and took two photographs of what appeared to be nature spirits or fairies. A little bit of story about that is that the girls basically asked to borrow the camera. They... They were playing down at the bottom of the garden and they said, oh, we just wanna, we wanna capture pictures of the fairies. Um, and the father was like, yeah, yeah, go on or whatever, take the camera. <laughs> so they <laughs> they took the camera and then they returned and they actually had pictures of what appeared to be fairies. Um, there was an investigation because, because everyone basically looked at this and went, well, there's no way that these could be faked. Um, again, I also have to put forward this idea just bearing in mind with the camera the fact that at the time cameras were considered to be scientific pieces of equipment you know this wasn't just a this wasn't a a regular thing this wasn't a right i'm just going to take a picture on my phone um this was a scientific piece of equipment it was you know it so it was kind of seen as this kind of this evidence thing it had more weight more gravitas toward it yes fake photographs did exist but it wasn't nearly as it wasn't as common it was kind of unheard of and you know photography this was the new science this was the new world um this was new technologies um also at the time this is around you know the same people who previously used to believe that having your photograph taken <laughs> might steal a little bit of your soul so um there was also a lot of uh, the idea that phot- uh, photography could actually capture the supernatural um, and could entrap the supernatural as well. So it's good to have that in mind. So these young girls, they come forward, they have these pictures of fairies. So uh, Doyle used the photos in a 19, um, in the 1920s to illustrate a piece he'd been commissioned to write on fairies for the Strand magazine. He truly believed the photos to be authentic. He wasn't alone, I should also add, this isn't just Conan Doyle on his own. There were other people who did also believe these pictures to be authentic. And there were other people writing about fairies, postulating that they were actually possibly a type of actual uh, sort of like an insect, insect which had sort of evolved. So they were actually taking a lot of the theories at the time, such as evolution and applying them to the mystical to explain the mystical without actually having any evidence that the mystical believe- existed at all, except for these photographs now the photographs and the plates were examined by a photography expert called harold snelling who said that the plates and photographs were genuine with no sign of tampering or studio work um so again you know in order to tamper with a photograph you actually it it was actually quite a difficult process and not something which would have been sort of really easy um or possible for two young girls to do and that's in terms of tampering with the equipment itself um he however did not confirm that the subjects were fairies <laughs> he was like well the photos definitely haven't been faked but i'm not confirming or denying that these are fairies um kadok could not find anything fake about them but declined to offer a certificate of uh, authenticity <laughs> i love this idea they're like well i can't prove that these are fake it's like I we might lose our reputation on this you real. can just see kodak
1: going yeah come on we're an up and coming ca- camera firm we 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 can't say this.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Three more photos were taken. Um, If you've never seen them, you can Google them uh, because there is something actually quite eerie about them. They're they're actually quite beautiful photos as well. You've probably actually have seen them before. um, But yeah, give them a little Google, um, the Cottingley fairies. So Doyle championed the photos as evidence for a long time. Um, He didn't read the room very well. (laughs) uh because while there were some people who did agree with him the majority did not the initial reaction to his publication was puzzlement and embarrassment um this was very much a sort of confirmation bias with with Doyle um he wanted to believe so he believed and he thought that everyone else would as well um spoiler they didn't his reputation was incredibly damaged because of this. Yeah,
1: and bear in mind, obviously, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle at this point, having produced one of the most beloved detectives of all time, um, mm. was considered to be something of a genius, and his credibility was in tatters after this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really it really did destroy him. Um, again, as I said, there were some who did think, but for the most part, people didn't um so why were the pictures so beguiling um well <laughs> first one uh world war one <laughs> Spirituals- spiritualism was a scientific religion at the time um it was considered only a matter of time before the next evolution began essentially and you know <sighs> all of these things were tied again this is a moment of of massive change as science you know and magic kind of met in a lot of ways and what was once mystery was now science but science itself was a kind of magic and technology as we said photographs could capture souls and things like that and you could use telephones and radios and stuff to sort of contact the dead the whole thing was all interconnected
1: yeah definitely
0: um, victorian superstition and enlightenment clashed with edwardian scientific discovery um, and the story was just too good not to be true two innocent girls manifest fairies strongly enough for a scientific implement to actually capture them i mean what's not to love
1: absolutely. Uh, that absolutely there is something there that appeals to us on the same level that archetypes do. So there is something in the human psyche that would respond to that. Even if you initially go, oh my god, and then your next your next is, okay, it's obviously fake. It has to be fake. There will be that little uptick of hope to start with because it taps into that part of the human psyche, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, interest in the Cottingley Fairies um, over the years fell off and then revived again. It kind of came in cycles. Um, Elsie and Frances maintained that the photos were genuine right up until 1980, where they eventually changed the story and admitted that they were faked. Except, and this is the interesting thing, they said that they were faked except for the last photograph of the fairy sunbath, which Frances insisted was real until the day she died. Yeah,
1: that's... Um... That's the one that's always sort of played on my mind a bit because there is something... There's a different sort of quality to that last photo. Mm. Um it, they, yeah. The other thing was that, if I've got this right, Elsie didn't remember who took that photograph. It's the only photograph that doesn't have one of the girls in. And yeah. they'd been playing around with the camera and thought, you know, that that was kind of a mistake. It wasn't a photo that either of them really remember taking. In fact... um Elsie kind of said was there a fifth photograph I don't remember what it was by this point the girls had been going through periods of anonymity getting on with a normal life and then being revived again and asked things by reporters and this had been happening in cycles over the decades and both of them were thoroughly fed up of it (laughs) can you imagine if you did something a bit dumb as a child and then every decade or so a bunch of reporters turned up to ask you about it
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so this is the question was there any truth to the story did the girls actually fake it did the girls see something and fake it in order to prove that they were telling the truth um and why was doyle taken in um so Jules, give me your theories on okay. this. okay um well the
1: last question is the easiest one to answer so mm-hmm. sir arthur conan doyle was taken in if taken in is even the right term thinking about it uh, because i don't mm-hmm. think there was deliberate malice involved but no he as we've said desperately wanted to believe he was looking for evidence and i think that's that's the thing that we we think oh sir arthur Conan doyle believed in fairies that's ridiculous ha 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 um, but the thing was he wasn't out there with a theory he wasn't sort of like mm. oh yes aliens abducted agatha christie he genuinely was looking for evidence in the what we would call the supernatural the paranormal in the sense of It exists, but at the moment we do not have the scientific equipment to detect it. So the idea that a scientific implement, as the camera was, might be able to capture something like that must have been incredibly appealing. Mm. If it had just been a sort of second-hand report, I expect he would have dismissed it. But the pictures made him stop and think, actually, there might be evidence for this thing, which I've always thought. So... His his mistake, I think, was nailing his curlers to the mast too soon and presenting it in a very excited sort of scientist, I've discovered something way, to um, to a whole bunch of people who are kind of like, um, hang on, what? They're <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So, uh, yes. Yeah. I think he would have yeah. had to have produced living examples of fairies <laughs> in order for them to to actually believe him um the one thing i will say is that fairies and nature spirits uh amongst the spiritualist community were not believed to be tangible in this reality they were not believed to be solid so in the same way as Mm. ghosts were not supposed to be solid or perceptible to human touch neither were fairies and i think it's something that Mm. we forget when we look at this case is that Um, they were talking about people having the ability through the study of spiritualism which was a scientific religion as as we've said to manifest these beings so in the same way that a medium might be able to manifest a ghost or ectoplasm or something like that all things which Mm -hmm. whether you believe it or not are relatively well documented and cannot be fully explained by trickery So I'm not saying that something is, I'm just simply saying, you know what, even now we cannot fully explain some of the things. Yeah, I can see why he would have gone there. But if you then take that information to a bunch of people who don't know anything about spiritualism or how carefully a lot of um, the main spiritualists and mediums were actually tested, of course, they're going to go, "Okay, this is he's nuts. He's clearly lost it. Yeah, he's he's lost his mind.
0: Um and I do think grief definitely played a part in that. I think he became a lot less cautious and a lot more willing to believe because he he had to believe. He wanted to believe yeah. because he's lost his son. Um so I think that that definitely played in. I think the other thing to also remember is the attitude that people had towards children. We're we're coming out of that Victorian moral, you know, dilemma of oh God, children are shouldn't work. Children are innocent and beautiful and wonderful. Children are
1: angels um, kind of thing.
0: Children are angels, yeah. Um the born tabula rasa, and then it's it's life and adulthood which sort of makes them go wrong. Um so what had happened was that you had these two young young girls. Two young girls, innocent, you know, well to do family, um who had captured fairies um, on on a on a camera and had no way of faking it, essentially. they had no way of tampering with a camera. So you can kind of understand why he would be willing to believe these young girls. He was willing to believe their innocence. He was willing to believe that they had actually captured these these pictures. Now, what we do know is that when the when they sort of talked about the fact that they were faked, um, Frances basically admitted, and it was why a lot of people said, Hold on a second, they've got some a very particular kind of hairstyles and things like that. Uh, Frances admitted that what she'd done was that she'd she'd traced images from a book. She'd traced them on paper, and then she'd u- they'd used wire or paper clips or hairpins, I think it had, it was, to just hold the 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 drawings up in place. Yeah. Um Which is why, of course, they couldn't see any tampering with the camera because it wasn't anything like that. It was just drawings which were held in place, uh, which is genius, really. (laughs) It's fantastic, and that's how they, you know, they said that it had been it had been done. Um, But this just it wouldn't have been conceived of. It wouldn't have been conceived of of these of these two well mannered, kind, lovely little girls purposefully deceiving people so that you know that does call into question of why why they decided to do this was this a little bit of fun um or were they actually you know did they did they say okay no fine we faked it because they wanted people to get off their back um or and if if that was the case why then you know say oh but the last one we don't know about the last one um or was it that um they did see something and because no one believed them and they couldn't seem to capture them on camera that they that they created these pictures instead
1: yeah that's the thing it's the idea of them holding to the story believing Mm. it themselves almost so intrinsically despite i mean can you imagine being okay i know i know elsie was 16 Can you imagine being a nine-year-old girl and being questioned by these eminent scientists who turn up who are looking for Mm. flaws in your story Yeah, and and still holding out and being convinced? So it's not to say that I think that it's absolutely true. I just think there are definite gaps in the story and we don't have the full story. And we're probably never going to have the full story now.
0: (laughs) No, no. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting one. I like to, I like to believe that they saw something. Whether that was because of imagination, whether it was you know, it was very much that Elsie felt she could see things, um, and Francis, or rather, r- rather that Francis felt she could see things, and Elsie uh, sort of was entertaining her i think they were cousins yeah. um but was entertaining her cousins uh, her cousin and drawing pictures for her and stuff like well, maybe that maybe elsie desperately um,
1: wanted to as well
0: yeah absolutely i mean this is possible um it is possible um and it might very well have been possible that frances did see something in the way that children see things you know how we say that whether that's imagination or not um or just that sense of wonder with with nature or things like that or whether they were just playing a game and it kind of got implemented as a false memory instead i think the thing
1: that strikes me and the reason i always find those photos slightly haunting is if you look at the expressions on the girls faces those expressions aren't faked so in that moment They might be playing a a wonderful game of make-believe, but in that moment they Mm. believe what they're doing. And I think that is why people had difficulty with them, because, yes, the fairies look a bit eerie and in in some respects two-dimensional, which, you know, if they're cut out card, then they would do. But they are quite well done for girls of that age, or those respective Mm. ages, and it's also a little bit... um, I guess... The the thing was, you know, they're talking about manifesting fairies and things. It's the idea that you wouldn't expect them to look three-dimensional if you were part of the spiritualist movement. So I don't... Again, not saying that they're real, but have you ever been out in the countryside in a place by yourself and it's Mm. felt like you're not alone? As in, there's a very definite genius Loki. You might be in the woods, up on the hills out on a burial mound or something and it feels like there is a presence there not necessarily a human presence but you've definitely got this feeling of not being alone and that's very common I, i don't think we really pay attention to what a huge connection humans have with the land around them and the fact that there are things that we don't really do anymore like automatically sense for For where the next water source is or automatically look for places where certain food plants would grow automatically have an Mm. idea of what direction we need to go in it's almost like a type of synesthesia but we've we've still got all that basic wiring there so it wouldn't surprise me if the girls were playing down in the beck and had that feeling that this is kind of a this is a fairy place to the point where Mm they almost gave this genius Loki thing a personification of its own. So, yeah, yeah, I think they kind of said we faked them to get... I mean, they'd have been old women by then, so they probably wanted people to stop turning up. It's like, please, God, don't turn up when I'm 90 and ask me these questions. <laughs> um, there's There's something there that hasn't been revealed by all the mystery surrounding it. The photos themselves sort of represents something else I think, but yes, the actual pictures of the fairies are fake
0: yeah yeah, absolutely um, but they are, they're great photos, they are great photos um, But they're worth having a look at just on their own because they're, they're very, very well done <laughs> um and the story is fantastic and again it has inspired a fair amount of of fiction you know versions where the Cottingley fairies were real and then they had to pretend they faked them or etc um but yeah it's certainly one of those great stories definitely And those are our four author mysteries. Um, What do you guys think of them? Do you have your own theories? Have you heard of these before? We really, really would love to hear from you. (laughs) Please um, leave a comment. Uh, You can get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter or Tumblr. What's your favorite um, one so far? What are your theories? Do you have any that you think that we should cover um, potentially in another episode all about all the mysteries because there's plenty more to go around um, do let us know. Before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week and Jules I believe that you've got one for us Yes, uh,
1: this is quite an appropriate one since it deals with both the Brontes and also with the sense of landscape and its effect on our psyches. Um, this is a book called Walking the Invisible by Michael Stewart um, mm-hmm. He's something of a Bronte obsessive which you know I can I can okay. totally relate to. I didn't just <laughs> I didn't research those 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 the facts on Branwell. I actually knew them because I've you done a lot of them. research in the past. <laughs> um, so basically, he was part of something called the Bronte Stones Project, which means that there were trails set up around Haworth and the moors where they are specific walks so there's an Anne Bronte walk a Branwell walk a Charlotte walk an Emily Bronte walk which is very wild very long and goes all across the world (laughs) as parts of the moor and it takes in these walks take in familiar sights things that might have inspired them it really connects you to the landscape as well so I you know it'd be a great thing to do and the book that covers those walks is part of the autobiographical and examines his relationship with the Brontes themselves and then li- through their work, obviously, because he's not actually that old. He's not he's not over 150 or anything.
2: You'll mm.
1: be glad to know. And he talks a little bit about each bronte in turn. Um, I don't agree with all of his theories, but it's a really good book, it's very enjoyably written, and I think it posits the really interesting question of how much are authors a product of the landscape they grew up in. How much does it shape their minds and their creativity? Um, which could almost be a subject of an episode on on its own, to be honest. So I will leave that there. But it's an excellent book. Highly recommend it.
0: Mm. Okay, that sounds really, really fantastic. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah,
1: thanks and goodbye. Bye. you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast